good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter. So we're going to be continuing through this book, uh, 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who are living in exile. They're living in exile. They're going through suffering, and they're going They're experiencing rejection by the world and the culture that they're living in because rejection is going to come um, if you try to obey God's word. Rejection is going to come if you try to obey Jesus. Jesus said, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And so exile will come our way if we are Christians who live according to God's word. Suffering is going to come. And the primary way that Peter tries to undergird those of us who are suffering, undergird those of us who are feeling an exile from this world is by reminding us, by telling us all the ways that God has loved us, by reminding us, telling us all the ways that God has loved us in order to give us hope in the midst of exile and hope in the midst of suffering. He wants us to know, Christians, that yes, following Jesus in this world means that you're going to experience an exile, that you're going to have suffering come your way. But what's first and foremost true about you is not the fact that you are an exile, but the fact that you are loved. That's the name of the series in 1 Peter, right? We are elect exiles. Not just exiles, but we are elect first. Not just rejected by the world, first and foremost, but first and foremost loved and accepted and embraced by God, and that gives us hope. How do we know that God loves us? Because God gave his son up for us. How do you know that Jesus loves you? Because he laid down his life for you. And think about this. How much would you have to love somebody if it was going to cost your child something? How much would you have to love somebody if it meant that it was gonna cost your child anything, let alone their life? Would you keep loving somebody if it meant that it was going to cost your child their life even? And so really the love that's demonstrated for us on the cross is an unfathomable love. It's a shocking kind of love. It's a paralyzing kind of love. It's a a demonstration of love that's shown to us from God's word that the world looks at and sees as foolish, right? The Bible says the perishing sees the gospel as foolishness. The world would look at it and even say, that is divine child abuse. That's what's happening there. That's not anything good. But for those of us Christians who have experienced this kind of love, if you've experienced it, it totally melts you. It changes you forever. And so that's what Peter is really doing through this first chapter. He's telling us in all kinds of ways, all sorts of ways, how much God loves us. And and we saw the height of that demonstration the last two weeks at the cross of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus. He shows us this, and then he says, look how much God has loved you. Look at this great love, and so now, in light of this great love, so now live in a manner worthy of receiving this kind of love. He calls, the, calls it the life of holiness. He says, you shall be holy because God is holy. You need to be holy in all your conduct. Receiving this kind of love from God ought to change the way that you live forever. So now let's get to verse 22, which is the verse we're gonna be in today. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, what does that mean? He's saying, you obeyed the truth of the gospel. You've placed your faith and hope in God for your salvation. That's what we talked about last week. Paul calls this the obedience of faith in the book of Romans. He's not talking about salvation by works here. He's saying, when you heard the truth of the gospel, which says that you are not saved by your own works. You can't save yourself by your own merits. You can't earn yourself back to God. You have to be saved by the work and merit of Jesus alone. It says, when you heard this good news of the gospel, you obeyed this gospel by placing your hope and trust in God and his salvation and in his gospel, not on your own works. And that when God produced this obedience of faith in you so that you placed all your faith and hope in him, this is when you were purified, when you were cleansed. In other words, these Christians, they have obeyed the truth of the gospel and so they are now saved. They're saved. And not only that, they're continuing to obey the truth of the gospel and they're living a life of holiness. It's talking about salvation and holiness here. But look at the verse again. Notice one very important word. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for, for, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. What that word is showing us is that being saved And living a life of holiness, it's for something. It's for something. What is it for? Peter says, it's for love. It's for a sincere brotherly love. Peter is saying that the goal and purpose of holiness isn't to separate yourself from everybody and say, oh, look how good I am. Look how holy I am. I'm better than you. Why can't you obey like me? Why can't you get your act together like me? Look how good and righteous and moral I am. He's saying the goal and purpose of holiness instead is what? Is love. You're not just set apart. Remember that word holy? It means set apart, but not just set apart. It means set apart for. You're set apart for what? Love. He's saying if you keep and obey all of God's word, Christians, if you go through this entire book and live it out and obey all that God is commanding of you, it's going to produce something. What's it going to produce? Love. It's going to produce a loving person. And so Jesus says, on this hangs all the law and all the prophets, our love for God, our love for one another. And so when you put it all together, very simply, this is what Peter is saying. He's saying, look how much God loves you. He's saying, look how much God has demonstrated his love for you on the cross in light of this love that you have received. So now love one another in the same way. Have you been loved? Have you you been loved in an incredible way? If you've been loved like this, go and love one another like this. Jesus said the same thing in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus is saying, I've loved you, so now go and love others. And so today we're looking at the command to love, and as we look at the command, I want us to ask three questions. Number one, who is being commanded to love? Who is being commanded to love? Number two, how are we to love? 
And number three, who do we love? Who do we love? Who is being commanded to love? How do we love? Who do we love? Let's look at the first question. Who is being commanded to love? Let's read the text again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Let's look at verse 23 also. This is a text, part of the text we're going to look at next week. But it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And so who's being commanded to love? Christians, right? At the beginning of verse 22, these are people who have obeyed the truth of the gospel. These are Christians. Verse 23 goes on to tell us that these are people who have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Christians are being commanded to love. You and I are being commanded to love. The church of God is being commanded to love. Seems like a very straightforward thing. But if you look at it another way, what Peter is doing is he's presenting love as the litmus test for whether you really are Christians or not. Peter is presenting you loving people as the evidence for whether you've really received this kind of love or not. Whether you've really been saved or not. And I think every Christian ought to ask this question at one point or another in their lives. Am I really a Christian? Right? Have I really been saved? Well, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Right? A Christian shouldn't live their entire life assuming they're a Christian. You should ask at one point or another, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Well, how can I know? If we had an opportunity to ask the Apostle Peter this question, Peter, Am I a Christian? Am I really saved? The way that he would answer is, he would say, well, let's look at how you love people. Let's look at how you love people. First of all, we have to do a quick work on what is the biblical love that Peter is presenting as the litmus test because the word love has fallen on some hard times, right? We say things like, oh, I love that TV show. Have you seen that TV show? I love that TV show. I say, I love fried chicken. I really do. I love fried chicken. Um, on the flip side, we say things like, I love my children. I love my family. I love Jesus, even. I love fried chicken. I love Jesus. The same word. <laughs> so there's a problem. And we may look at this litmus test and quickly dismiss it because you say, you see, I, I do love. I love all sorts of people, all kinds of things, right? I must be saved. But God really used this text to really convict me, really to show me some ugly sins in my life. God's word is described as a mirror, James says, right? It shows you what you look like. And I didn't really like what I saw this week. Because honestly, if you were to ask my closest friends and family, hey, what is the top attribute that describes Halim, for sure it would not be love. It would not be loving. I don't think it makes the top 10. And so here's a problem. That's a real problem because God's word says this is the distinguishing marker of someone who's really a Christian. This is the distinguishing marker of someone who has experienced this kind of unbelievable love. So now they go love. First of all, what is biblical love? The kind of love that can serve as our litmus test. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. Okay, so there it is. By this we know love, the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay, what does this look like? It's not talking about you go lay down your life. Literally, you could only do that once. God is calling us to a perpetual, everyday love, right? So what does laying down our lives for our brothers mean? But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The answer is it doesn't. Little children, let, not, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see this kind of love in your life, a laying down your life kind of love, a giving up of the world's goods for the sake of meeting the need of your brother and sister in Christ kind of love, seeing their need and not closing your heart against them? but opening your heart and saying, well, do I have what they need? Can I give up this good in order to meet their need? Not just talk, but deed and truth kind of love. And John, it's not just Peter, John 2 in the very next chapter presents this kind of love as the litmus test for whether you're saved or not. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever Loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. It's who he is. And so if you've you've actually experienced him, you're going to do that which he is. And here's the biblical point. The only people in the world that can love like this are people who have been loved like this. That's the biblical point. Here's this love, here's this command, the only people in the world that could actually go and obey this command to love in this way are a people who have been loved in this way. Because this kind of love is impossible unless you've received this kind of love, that's why it's the litmus test. And so let's take an honest assessment of your life. I try to do this this week. As you look at your life, do you find yourself forgiving? Somebody wrongs you. What's the regular pattern of your life? Do you forgive? Do you find yourself forgiving? Because if you haven't been forgiven, you won't be able to forgive. Do you love others even when it costs you something? Financially, emotionally, your time, or does your love consist of talk, as John says? Does your love consist of just well wishes, I'll think of you this week kind of love? Jesus didn't just sit around and wish you were saved, right? Oh, I love these people so much, I wish their sins could be forgiven somehow. He didn't just wish, he didn't just send good thoughts your way, it cost him. He went and did something. Love drove him to action. Love is an action, that's why it's commandable, right? If it's just emotion, he can't command emotions out of you, right? God's not commanding you to like somebody, you can't. You got no control over whether you like somebody or not, but love is primarily an action and so he can command you. Do you have any friends in your life that at one point or another, they've sinned against you? They've hurt you. They've betrayed you. But now, they're closer than ever before. Do you have friends like that? Or all all your friends just consist of people that are nice to you, great to you, never really wronged you? Because after all, if you look at the family of God, we are filled with people at one time who were enemies against God, enemies towards each other, but... We have been reconciled. And so who are your friends? Who do you befriend? 
Do you find yourself gracious and warm and vulnerable in your dealings with people, in your manner and in your face and in your tone of voice so that people want to come to you and confide in you? Or do you find that in general you're a cold person? Do you find that in general you're a self-righteous person? Your conversations are regularly filled with, have you heard about so-and-so? Did you hear about what they did? Can you believe that? I could never do that. Are you generally a self-righteous person? Are you generally a self-serving and a self-absorbed person? There's somebody that you've never really showed any interest in, right? But then you find out they have a certain job. They have a certain skill or they know somebody. And so then all of a sudden you want to get to know them. All of a sudden you want to do something for them because you want them to do something back for you. Do you find that in general you're a distant person, a standoffish person? Do you think that in general people are just uninteresting, dumb and annoying, and maybe both? Well, these are all the ugly things I've seen in my life. And here's the thing. If this is the pattern of our life, if this is the pattern of our life, not only that we're seeing these things in our life, but we're continuing to move along with that trajectory. If this is the pattern of our life and there's no trajectory of change over the years, I think we really need to ask ourselves then, well then have I really experienced the gospel? Have I really received the grace and love of God? Because the Bible is telling us that if you look at the cross, if you look at the cross and you see Jesus there suffering and dying for you, right? That's what you're saying when you're a Christian, Right? You're saying at the cross, Jesus died for you because of your sins. And so if you look at the cross and you see Jesus dying and suffering for you because of your sins, that kind of love is going to do something in you. You receiving that kind of love, right, that included the death, a giving of a son for you, is going to produce in you love. It has to. And that's really the hopeful thing about the Bible because the Bible's saying, God's word is saying, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. If you've received this kind of love, you will love one another in this way. It may take many years. God is patient with you. That's part of him loving you, being patient with you. He is patient, but eventually, for the Christian, the trajectory of our lives is always going towards love. It's always going towards God's people, not away from. When you look at your life, where's the trajectory? Is it moving towards more, more love, more love, more love? Or is it moving away from, away from God's people? They're too much trouble. They let me down too much. Well, some of you are thinking, well, I, I really don't love like that. So does that mean I'm not saved? Well, the question I would ask is, So do you want to? Do you want to love like that? Do you want to love the way that Jesus loved? Because if there's a fight in you, if there's a desire in you, if you at least want to love in this way, well, that is a great and amazing evidence for the fact that you have received the love of God in this way. Because if you haven't, if you haven't received the love of God in this way, then utterly sacrificing yourself for somebody else? giving yourself up, giving, giving your, the world's goods for their need, forgiving no matter what kind of love seems like utter foolishness to you, seems like madness to you. And so if there's a fight in you, if you at least want to love in this way, that's great evidence that 
you have been loved in this way. And so point number one, Christians are commanded to love because Christians are the only ones who have been loved in this way. We're the only people in the world that could actually obey this command. And the second question is, so then how do we love? I've already talked about it some, but I want us to look at two specific words that Peter uses to describe how we are to love. Let's look at the verse again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere, sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, earnestly from a pure heart. I want us to look at the two ways, the two words that Peter uses. He says it's sincere and it's an earnest love. Sincere and earnest. Let's look at the first one, sincere. Peter calls it a sincere love. What does that mean? The word sincere there means without hypocrisy. It means unmasked, shown to be what it really is. It means truth. John said the same thing, right? Let us not love with just talk, but deed and truth, right? A sincere love is a love that's bound up with truth. What Peter is telling us is that if you don't have truth, you really can't have love. If you don't have truth, you can't have love. You see, this is an area where Christians really ought to feel our exile, the fact that we really are different from the world, because if we as Christians say, you know, at the end of the day, it's just all about loving people, right? If Christians, we say, you know, this book, this Bible, all it's really teaching at the end of the day is just that we need to love people. Well, you're not going to be persecuted for that, right? The world isn't going to say, how dare you, right? If you say that, if you just say that, the world's going to applaud you. That's right, that's right. That's what we've been saying. It's just about loving people. But Christians, what makes us different is that we're not just called to love, we're called to a sincere love. We're called to a sincere love. We're called to a truth-filled love because you really can't have love without truth. The world wants to separate love from truth. And the moment you bring truth into it, they call that hate. The world says, if you love me, you can't tell me that I'm sinning. If you really love me, you can't tell me that I'm sinning. The world says, if you love me, then you can't make any negative comments about how I'm living, how I'm choosing to live my life. But that's not love. What is that? That's tolerance. That's tolerance. You don't need truth for tolerance. In fact, the moment you bring truth into it, you're no longer being tolerant, right? The best, the absolute best that the world can go for is tolerance and they call it love because if you've never experienced this truth-filled love of Jesus the tolerance tolerance is the best that you will be able to do the moment you bring truth they see as hate right but we as Christians are to bring in truth we have to bring in a standard of measure that's constantly asking yes but is this good yes but is this right We're called to love, not to tolerate. Christians are called to love, not to tolerate. Why? Because Jesus didn't tolerate us. Is that the word? Look at everything that Jesus did for us. Is that the word? Did he tolerate us? You are sinners, but uh, yeah, I'll just kind of forget about it. I won't won't send you to hell over that. that. That might be tolerance, right? But what did he do for us? He gave us truth standard of measure, the law, God's word that says we are sinners and we deserve completely and absolutely the wrath of God. We deserve to die. The wages of sin is death. But did he leave truth alone? No, he came and wrapped it with love. 
And he says, but because I love you, I'm going to die for you, right? Jesus gave us love with truth, not tolerance. And so our love has to be sincere. It has to be filled with truth. And here are three ways that we can be sincere or truth-filled in our love. Number one, we can love each other by telling the truth about ourselves. We can love each other by telling the truth about ourselves through confession. Number two, we can love each other by telling the truth about each other. Each other through confrontation. And as we do one or two, we tell the truth. We love each other by telling the truth about God to one another. By reminding each other about the gospel. We love each other by telling the truth about ourselves, by telling the truth about one another, by telling the truth about God. First, through confession. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ by telling them the truth about ourselves through confession. You know, when I sin against Angela, my wife, sometimes I think to myself, you know, if I confess this, it's going to hurt her, and I love her, and so I don't want to hurt her, and so I don't confess, right? But if I do that, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm trying to separate love from truth as if they are different, and so if I do that, what am I doing? I'm not loving her. I'm lying to her, first of all. I'm presenting myself to be better than I really am, right? And so the next time that Angela sins, what does she think? She doesn't feel the freedom to come and confess to me and share with me. Instead, she feels shame. She thinks to herself, well, Helen never struggles with this and that. What's wrong with me, right? And I'm not only lying, I'm robbing. I'm robbing her of the Uh, of the way of internalizing the gospel for herself because if I've wronged her, if I've sinned against her, the only way she's going to be able to forgive me is if she internalizes the gospel for herself. And I rob her of the third way of loving me by reminding me of who God is, telling the truth about who God is, telling the truth about what the gospel says. I'm robbing her of an opportunity to tell me, Halim, you have wronged me, you have sinned against me and it hurts, but in Christ you're forgiven. In Christ you're forgiven. And I'm a sinner too. And because Jesus has forgiven me, I too forgive you, right? That's what happens when we love each other by telling the truth. Another way that we need to love each other is through confrontation. By speaking the truth about each other through gentle and kind confrontation. Well, sometimes sin needs to be confronted. Now, some of you are like, I got this one down, um, A lot of you are more than willing to tell it like it is. But remember, the command is to sincerely love. Okay, The command isn't just to be sincere. It's not just to tell the truth. Remember, truth by itself only condemned us. Right? If God only gave us truth, it would only mean condemnation. We don't just give each other truth. We give each other truth-filled love, a sincere love. Truth and love has to be bound up and inseparable for the Christian because remember the Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But I would think that the bigger problem you and I face with confrontation is that there's a cowardice about us, right? You want people's approval so bad. You want people to like you so much that you don't love them enough to say the hard things. You got to love each other enough to say the hard things, The world finds confession utterly foolish. Why in the world would you tell somebody how weak you are? Why in the world would you let somebody get a leg up on you? The world finds confession utterly foolish. 
the world finds confrontation hateful, right? How dare you judge me? How dare you tell me what I'm doing is wrong? But the Christian, but the Christian is always admitting. The Christian is always confessing, look, I sinned again. I failed again. Look how weak I am. And so what's the only conclusion? So how great must the cross be? I sinned again? Look how weak I am? So how great must the cross be? And the Christian sees that there's ultimately no hope in tolerance. That to be tolerant is no love at all. In fact, tolerance is cowardice. And so even at the risk of being misunderstood, even at the risk of being hated, we gently pursue each other with truth, with a sincere love. And next, God commands us through Peter to love earnestly, sincerely with truth and earnestly. Let's look at the text again, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does that mean? It's the Greek word ektenes. It's a physiological word. It means to stretch to the limit of a muscle's capacity. That's what earnest means. To literally to stretch to the very furthest point until that muscle reaches its maximum limit. It's a very graphic Term. It means metaphorically to go all out, to reach to the very limit of love as far as you can reach. It's the same word that's used of Jesus when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says he prayed in agony, fervently, sweating great drops of blood. It's a love that stretches as far as it could possibly reach. In other words, an earnest love is a love that doesn't give up on people. It's a love that doesn't give up on people. And I just wonder if there are Christians in your life that you've given up on because they've just cost you too much. They've just let you down too many times. They've just cost you emotionally, physically, financially, just too much. And what Peter is saying is, well, Jesus didn't give up on you. He didn't give up on you. He didn't say, my love will come this far, but no further. He didn't draw limits and boundaries to his willingness of how far he would reach for you. He reached utterly to the very ends. No cost is too much. He laid down his very life for you. He stretched to the furthest limits of love and he laid down his life for us and so we are to love in the same way we go all out. We strive, we strain, we work. This means love is going to hurt. It's going to cost you pain. If there's people that you think you're loving in your life and they've never cost you, you're not loving them, right? If there's people in your life that you say you love and you're loving, but you've never felt pain over them, you're not loving them. It's going to cost you time, money, and sleep. It's going to cost you your comfort. It's going to cost you approval. It's going to cost safety. Love is going to cost. Love always costs. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon recently at the Gospel Coalition Conference, and he says that when you bear the burden of someone, you always have to go near the burdened person. If you're going to bear the burden of someone, you always have to go near the burdened person. You can't love from a distance. You not only have to go near them, but if you're going to bear their burden, part of their burden has to come up on 
to you. And so if somebody's holding a 100-pound weight, right, the only way you're going to be able to relieve them, the only way you're going to bear their burden is if you come near them and you have to allow 20 pounds of it, 40 pounds of it, 80 pounds of it to flow on to you, right? If you're really going to bear somebody else's burden, you can't do it without some of it coming back onto you. And so love always costs. If there's no cost, there is no love. Somebody's holding their 100-pound weight, and you come alongside of them and say, man, that looks heavy. I'm so sorry you're going through that. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sure it's going to get better, right? I'm so sorry you're going through that hard time, right? This week, I'm really going to think about you. See you later. Is that love? Is that love? If there's no cost, there is no love. And really the greatness of love that is shown is by the greatness of the cost. The only way you know how great this love is is by looking at how much it costs. Isn't that why the cross is so great? When we look at the cross, we're saying, look at the cost, right? You're saying, look at the price, look at the worth, look at the Son of God. He who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? How do we know God loves us? How do we know that it's great? We're looking at the cost. We're looking at the price. We're looking at the worth. And that's why it is the greatest love ever demonstrated ever. Because it is the greatest price. Because it is the greatest worth. It is the greatest cost ever paid in order for love to be demonstrated. And so the earnest loving Christian says, oh, come on, burden. The earnest loving Christian says, oh, come on, burden. I remember a time when somebody bore my burden, right? So come on, burden. I remember a time when somebody stretched and strained and reached out so they could love me. I remember a time, and so come on, burden. I remember a time when somebody paid. I remember a time when it cost even somebody's life for mine. And so come on, burden. I'll take your burden. I'll bear your burden. And so the question is, am I loving the body of Christ with an earnest love? A stretching love, a strenuous love. Am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that costs me in significant ways? Who do you know that has a real need in our church? Who do you know that is struggling financially, spiritually, emotionally? And will it cost you financially, spiritually, and emotionally to love them? Absolutely, love always costs. And that's how you can know if you really helped them or loved them or not. Did it cost you financially? Did it cost you spiritually? Did it cost you emotionally? If it didn't, you didn't love them. Do you know a single parent that's trying to raise their children all alone? How can you as a family stretch in order to love on that single parent and their children? Do you know a Christian that suffered a tragedy? Well, should a brother or sister in Christ ever weep alone? How many times are there just in our church You know, perhaps somebody is lonely. They're sending you texts, but you just find them annoying. You're just ignoring. How many times in our church are there people that are just hanging on by a thread in one way or another? They're just coming here week after week. Perhaps they're sitting right next to you, just desperate for somebody to reach out to them and say, hi, I haven't met you. What's your name? How are you doing? Right? 
not just in a sentiment, polite kind of a way where you're just demanding, all you want to hear is one word answer. I'm fine, I'm good, right? But asking in a way, how are you doing, in a way that shows you really care. And this is the difficult part. What if you're the one that's struggling? What if you're the one that's suffering? What if you're the one that needs to be loved? Are you commanded to love in this way? Well, human sentiment and man's wisdom would say, no, no, you're exempt. You're going through hard things right now. You're suffering right now. You're exempt. At least for a season, right? But who is Peter writing to? Who is Peter writing to? Not just Christians. Suffering Christians. Suffering Christians, remember? And so the command to love sincerely and earnestly is to every believer. There's no one exempt. Peter is saying, have you been loved? That's all he's saying. That's all he's asking. Have you been loved in this way? So then go love one another in this way. No Christian is exempt from loving. Every Christian who has been loved in this way is called to love in this way. And so what if we loved each other like this? What what would the Austin Stone look like if we were filled with people who loved each other like this? Even people who are suffering, right? Even people who are suffering, straining to love other people in this way. Well, we can be a church like this. We can be a church like this if we would love in the way that we've been loved. Keep going back. Keep thinking. How have I been loved? And so then how can I love? Well, let's close by answering the last question. Who do we love? Who are we to love in this way? Let's look at the text again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Peter calls us to a brotherly love, a family love. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to love the church, believers, one another in the family of God in this way. Now, that sounds weird. That feels a little wrong because sometimes we say, well, what about the world? What about non-Christians? What about unbelievers? Shouldn't we love them? Shouldn't we focus on loving them? Well, yes, we should love unbelievers, but they are not our first calling. That's what this is saying. Our first calling is to love one another. And what the Bible shows us is that one of the primary ways that you can love an unbeliever, one of the primary ways that you can love a lost person is by loving one another. Elsewhere in the scriptures, the Bible says to love especially those in the household of faith. Not to not love unbelievers, but to especially love those within the household of faith. And so Jesus says in John 13, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, there's only one kind of love that Jesus is pointing to and saying, all people, lost people, when they see this, then they will know. What is it? Which love is it? Right? Does Jesus say, By this they will know your love for them, your love for the lost. Does he say that? No, he says, by this they will know. By what love? By your love for one another. And really, the question is, 
if an unbeliever saw how we loved each other within the body of Christ, within the family of God, if they saw that, would they want to be a part of this family, right? I think here at the Austin Stone, we effort so much on missions and loving the nations and loving the lost, which is absolutely amazing. It's the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our church. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep doing that. But the question here today is, so how are we at loving one another? How are we at loving one another? I think often we let each other down. I think often we don't come through for one another. I think often we don't serve one another. I think often we even serve the lost at the cost of serving and loving one another. I think the people we most frequently let down and disappoint are the people in our lives that we say we love the most, right? And so again, the question is, if an unbeliever saw how we loved each other within our family, would they want to be a part of this family? So I'm not saying we should love the lost less. I'm not saying we should love the nations less. I'm saying we should love the lost more. We should love the nations more by serving and loving one another more. That's why we don't send people to the nations by themselves. We send people as groups to join other groups because this is the most powerful witness and weapon that we have as Christians. God is saying, I have given you a weapon. I've given you a witness that is so powerful when somebody looks at it, when somebody who doesn't know me, when somebody who is lost, when they see it, then they will know. What is it? What is that weapon? What is that witness? It's our love for one another. What if an unbeliever of this city saw a church who relentlessly loved each other, right? What if an unbeliever of this city saw a church filled with people who relentlessly forgave one? They did what to you and you forgave? What if they saw that? What if they saw a group of people who relentlessly pursued each other gently and kindly with God's word, with truth? What if they saw a group of people who strained and worked and it cost them so much to love? What if they saw a a love like that? Well, that would be the greatest witness, the greatest testimony of the kind of love that we have received from Jesus. And so God's word said, by this they will know. By this they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray together. So, Father, we feel the weight even now. Lord, how in the world can we love like this? And the answer is we can't. If we just try to go out and try to love like this, it's not in us. It's not in human nature to go and love and forgive and sacrifice and consider others better than ourselves, consider other needs before our needs. Lord, it's impossible unless we keep going back over and over and over and over again to the cross. So Father, will you do that for us this week, today, as we go and obey this command to love one another. Father, it has to be fueled by something. It has to be fueled by the realization that we have already experienced this kind of love that you, God, have 
poured out your love into our hearts. It's there already. That kind of love that you want us to love others with, it's there in our hearts already. You've poured it out into our hearts, Lord, and so help us now to make it abound. Help us now, because it's in there, to pour it out. Father, it's, a, it's impossible apart from our visiting the cross of Jesus over and over again. Will you take us there, Lord? Help us to be a people of love who love one another sincerely, earnestly, so that the world may know. So that the world may know, Lord. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.